Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. Hello and welcome to Naked Astronomy with me, Dominic Ford. This month, an update on Comet Ison, which will be skimming close to the Sun next month. What rocky fragments around Mars can tell us about the risk of asteroid impact? And the lonely planet which is drifting through space without a parent star. As always, if you'd like to get in touch, tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can drop us an email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. Over the past few months, the arrival of Comet Ison in this autumn's night sky has been eagerly anticipated. Ison is a so-called sun-grazing comet, and in late November it will skim within a mere two sun radii of the sun's surface heating the comet to temperatures of thousands of degrees centigrade. It's widely expected that this will result in its surface venting steam and dust to space on an absolutely vast scale, and the comet could grow an absolutely incredible tail. But having been described by some as potentially the comet of the century just last year, more recently pundits have been being more cautious. NASA, for example, recently went as far as to describe it not visually pleasing. To hear more about these latest observations, I spoke to Matthew Knight from the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. Well, it's coming in from the outer solar system. It's gotten in past Mars now. It's getting close to about the distance of Earth's orbit. And it'll be reaching perihelion, or closest approach to the Sun, on November 28th. There's been some debate over whether it's going to be a brilliant comet or whether it might be a bit of a disappointment. I gather it's behaved rather unexpectedly. Yes, it started out brightening fairly rapidly early on a year ago, and astronomers were quite optimistic about how it would brighten from then on in towards close approach to the sun. But it slowed down, and it has not been brightening nearly as steeply as we hoped it might, which means it's taken its time. It's, it's getting brighter, but just kind of gradually, and it looks unlikely to be the comet of the century or the really bright comet that we were hoping it might be. But it still looks like it should be a decent comet. I think there's a good chance that it could become naked eye, and certainly when it's very close to the sun, uh, especially when it's observable by satellites like SOHO and STEREO, it should be a very interesting comet to observe. The problem is that it's going to be very close to the sun when it is that brilliant comet. Right. That makes it very hard to see from the ground and with the naked eye um, because it's got that very bright sky background being very close to the sun. Most likely it won't be very bright when it's far enough away from the sun that you can get a nice clear dark sky to look at it. So how have you been trying to understand its behaviour? I've been studying it in several ways. I'm primarily a ground-based observer, but recently I have just completed a paper on where we did some computer simulations to look at the comet and try and figure out if it was likely to survive its close approach to the sun or if it was likely to break up. Comets are notoriously difficult to predict because they're this mixture of snow and rock, and it all depends what they're made of, how they're going to behave. How easy is it to computationally simulate that? 
Uh, it's fairly challenging. I mean, we don't know a whole lot specifically about this comet. We know very little, so we're just using generalities we know about other comets and trying to apply them to this one. But as you said, things can be very different, very unpredictable, especially on a comet like this that's never been close to the sun before. It's just really hard to know exactly how it will react. So what we did was just take some of these characteristics that we could constrain a bit, so we knew roughly how big it is, and we know, generally speaking, how dense comets are from observing other comets. And we made some assumptions about, for instance, how elongated it was, so was it circular or more cigar-shaped, and about how fast it was likely to be spinning. But again, they're just generalizations because we don't know the specifics of this comet yet. It must be a worry that the comet has been behaving so unexpectedly. It hasn't brightened over the last few months. Does that make it difficult to draw parallels with previous comets? It does. Because it hasn't gotten as bright as we hoped, it means that telescopes haven't been able to observe it quite as well as we would have hoped they might. So there's not quite as much information out there at this point that I thought there might have been if you asked me about this, say, six months ago. So that has affected things. You mentioned its rotation period earlier. Am I right in thinking it's quite a slow rotating comet, this one? I'm not sure. Certainly that's one interpretation. Basically, as we've tried to look at it and see if there's a rotation period, we look for a signal in the brightness, brightening and decreasing. And things like Hubble and Spitzer, which both observe from space, so they don't have the problems with it being night or day and losing time. Um, they can observe it over a long period of time, and they haven't seen substantial fluctuations in brightness. So one interpretation of that is that it could be a quite long period, several days long, for instance. The other interpretation is just that there's just not much that we can see, that it's, it could be anything, and it's just such a small level because it's either a small nucleus or it's very active, and that the signal from the coma or the gas the sort of fuzzy gas around the nucleus is bright enough that it's obscuring our view of the nucleus. And so we just can't pick up that signal. So it it could be faster, but it's just being obscured. So what you're trying to do there, you're hoping the comet is non-spherical. It's got a knobbly shape. And as it rotates, it's presenting a different cross-section to observers on Earth. Exactly right. You can imagine looking at, say, a soda bottle, and as it rotates, if you're looking at it down the cap, you'd see a very small cross-section, and if you look at it from the side, you'd see a very large cross-section, and that would correspond to a low point or a high point in its brightness. So the conclusion from your studies, by the sounds of it, is that it may not fragment, and it may remain intact as it passes close to the sun. Right. That's what we concluded in our paper. This is not a 100% sort of guarantee. This is just in our simulations, more often than not, it looked like it would survive. But we certainly had some simulations where it did not survive as well. And what does that mean for the brightness of the comet moving ahead? I suppose a fragmentation event would be very bright for a short period, but then it would fizzle out? A good parallel to this is Comet Lovejoy, which came around about two years ago. (laughs) The last Comet Lovejoy, there's currently one that was just discovered that's getting fairly bright also. But the Comet Lovejoy from 2011, it was also a sun-grazing comet, so a relatively similar orbit to Comet Ison. And it broke up within a few hours or maybe a day or so after its close approach to the sun. And when it did that, it just kind of disintegrated, and it dumped all of the dust that made up that comet all at the same time, and it produced a really spectacular tail. So it was a southern hemisphere object, so those of us in the northern hemisphere couldn't see it. But from the south, from Australia, from Chile, they got really nice pictures, and it became a naked-eye comet with a very long, bright tail. So if Ison were to break up, I think that's certainly a very strong possibility. I expect it to have a good tail anyway, but if it were to disrupt and break up, I think it would become the most spectacular that it could be of the apparition. 
But if it doesn't break up, then it, it may not look quite as spectacular with the naked eye, but it means that astronomers can continue to study it outbound again. And it's actually better for observing from the ground and from Earth after perihelion than before. So in late December, for instance, is when it would be up all night long from the northern hemisphere, and it would be fairly close to the Earth. So that would be our best time as astronomers to study it. Am I right in thinking that earlier in the week a new image was released from the Hubble Space Telescope which showed a very smooth coma, and that seems to also be suggesting it's not going to fragment? Yes, I was very pleased to see that Hubble image come out, exactly as you described it. It's a very smooth coma. There's no evidence that it has already fragmented. It just looks like a well-behaved comet. So looking ahead to the next few months, if people want to go out in their gardens and look at ISON, what might they expect to see? So first, I'll caution that folks have to go out early in the morning. Right now, and also immediately after perihelion, it'll be a morning object, so it's up before sunrise. And right now, I'm being told from people with their own telescopes, sort of you know, small 10-inch kind of telescopes, that they are able to pick it up now. And you can see a central condensation and a dust tail. It probably won't look as good as pictures like from Hubble, <laughs> but that's the general idea. And as it gets closer to the sun, it should get brighter. I expect that dust tail will get longer, and it will hopefully continue to be a more impressive object. And again, after perihelion, I expect to have a longer tail because it will have lost a lot more dust right around perihelion. So in the first week, two weeks after perihelion, so early December, that's when I think people really have the best shot to see it with their eyes or with binoculars or with the backyard telescope and to look for that big, long tail that that could, in fact, be many degrees long. That was Dr Matthew Knight, who's based at the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. In recent months, we've heard numerous stories on this podcast about the discovery of new exoplanets, planets which are orbiting stars other than our own sun. Recently, searches have picked up such a pace, but earlier this month, astronomers announced the discovery of a thousandth such planet, only 21 years after the first was discovered in 1992. But one object has attracted a special attention. PSOJ 318.5-22 may not sound from its name like a conspicuous object. But what's unusual about it is that it seems to be drifting through space without a parent star, as Tamla Masil from the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge explained to me. So, really interesting actually, this month an international team of astronomers based at the University of Hawaii have discovered what appears to be a rogue exoplanet. Now this is highly unusual, normally we find other exoplanets around other stars besides our own, but we're looking for wobbles in their luminosity, we're looking for wobbles in their position, This is very much a coincidence finding of a lonely, cold, dark world out there by itself without a star to orbit around. So would we expect to find planets on their own in deepest, darkest space? We do, theoretically. It's possible that this planet was ejected from some solar system by a massive interaction and is now kind of wandering the galaxy by itself. Recently, people are starting to think it is possible for massive planets to actually collapse directly from a cloud of gas and dust in a process that's very similar to how stars form, but on a planetary scale. But this is one of the first examples of actually seeing a direct detection. And it's nice that it's so close by, actually, because we can actually get an image of it. We don't just know it's there because of gravitationally we see that something must be there. We actually take a picture of it. And it's a very red, cold object. The difficulty, I suppose, is that planets don't shine their own light. They reflect the light of a star they're around. And if there's no star there, how do you actually see that planet at all? We mostly see it in the infrared wavelengths. It's just a very hot object at the moment, and that's because it's very young. 
they reckon it's about 12 million years old, which is very much a newborn planet compared to Earth's four and a half billion years. So it's still hot from that initial collapse and formation of the planet. And eventually, with time, it will cool down. We might not be able to see it anymore. If this object's so young, can we identify which star it was initially in orbit around, or do we even think it didn't form around the orbit of a star at all? So it's still a question of where it actually came from. It's looking likely that it actually did form from a direct collapse and in a kind of nursery, a stellar nursery, along with other young stars. And this nearby star system has a similar age to the planet, and it's a similar radial velocity. They're kind of moving together. So it it does look as though it formed from a direct collapse, not orbiting around any star, but near other stars that formed around the same time. So this is a star cluster, and this particular object is just a kind of failed star that wasn't big enough to start shining its own light? Sort of. Interestingly, the uh, group of astronomers was actually looking for a type of object called a brown dwarf. And this is often called a failed star. And it's somewhere between a massive planet and a star. And it just didn't have quite enough mass in order to actually start nuclear fusion. So they were looking for those. This object is more like the size of Jupiter. It's about six times the mass of Jupiter. Definitely still planet-sized much more like a planet, actually. They look at the infrared signature and stuff, and it's definitely much more like a gas planet rather than a star. You mentioned earlier how difficult these objects are to observe. What telescopes do we have that can pick out these very faint infrared sources? So they're using data from the PanSTARRS telescope, which is located in Hawaii, and they did a lot of other follow-up observations with different optical telescopes in Hawaii as well. The nice thing about finding this planet and having it nearby, and we can actually take a picture of it, and the fact that it's a rogue planet means that we don't have that blinding headlight effect of the nearby star that it's orbiting. So we can have a nice snapshot, a very, very young planet, sort of a Jupiter-sized planet, look at it as it was as a baby and not be blinded by the nearby star. So even though this planet is very faint, it doesn't have a star illuminating it, you're saying that makes it easier to see because it's not hidden in the glare of that very bright star that you would otherwise have right next to it. Yeah, so not necessarily easier to detect, because it was a chance finding that we happened to stumble across this, but definitely easier to do follow-up observations once we know it's there. In the past few months, we've seen an awful lot of exoplanet discoveries. In fact, I think the discovery of a thousandth exoplanet has just been announced this month. What do you think the prospects are for finding more free floaters like this one? Well, if we're interested in the kinds that are possibly forming from direct collapse, similar to how a star forms, then we could possibly target these stellar clusters, young stellar clusters, and look for very faint infrared signals, you know, other objects nearby that may have been ejected or may have just recently formed. They'll still be warm and emitting, but um, they'll have a very different signature to the bright young stars. We could look around those and see if there's anything interesting there. My thanks to Tamla Masil from the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. You're listening to Naked Astronomy with me, Dominic Ford. Now, what can rocky fragments close to the orbit of Mars tell us about how to divert any asteroids that we might find in the future on collision courses with the Earth? Dr Apostolos Christou from the Armagh Observatory in Northern Ireland has been studying a group of asteroids known as Trojans, which follow almost exactly the same orbits as the solar system's planets, but sit 60 degrees in front of or behind them. These are stable spots in the solar system where asteroids can exist very close to planets, 
for periods of billions of years, but without having any danger of colliding with them. Trojan asteroids are trapped in certain areas of the solar system. They are confined to move either 60 degrees behind or 60 degrees ahead of a planet in its orbit. The interesting thing about these regions is that they are quite stable. The asteroids could remain there for many hundreds of millions or even billions of years, and that in turn makes them interesting for studies of the early evolution or even the formation of the solar system. So they're actually following very similar orbits to the planets of the solar system. They're just a little way along the orbit in front of or behind the planet. Do all the planets have these asteroids following them? Yes, certain planets do seem to have them, while others do not. For example, Jupiter has several thousands of these trojans following it along its orbit. We also know that Neptune has a few, and also Mars. The other planets do not have this stable kind of trojan, although they do have a different type of trojan, which we call a transient trojan. These are objects that happen to fly right into one of those traps, but the trap never closes, so they are also capable of living it again after a short while. Do we know why certain planets have more Trojans than others? Is it proximity to the asteroid belt, or is it how massive they are and how much gravitational influence they have? Proximity to the asteroid belt is a factor, but that doesn't seem to be the only factor that determines whether a planet has Trojan or not. For example, we don't know of any Trojans of Mercury, Venus, or the Earth. And that's not necessarily because there are no Trojans there. It could just be that these objects are difficult to observe. Now, I know you've been studying in particular the Trojans of Mars. What's the big surprise there that you've been looking at? It has been known for some time that Mars has several Trojans, in fact, since 1990. What I did was I did a new search specifically for Trojans of Mars, not a search with a telescope, but a search into what we call an asteroid catalogue. So these were objects that were already known, but nobody to that date had looked to see whether any of these could be Trojans and also how stable they might be. So to my mild surprise, I found three more objects and also confirmed an additional object that was proposed as a Mars Trojan by an earlier work, but had not been confirmed up to this day. So this brought up the number of known stable Trojans of Mars from three to seven. So I more than doubled the population of known Martian Trojans. Now, as soon as I did that, I also noticed that the orbits of these Trojans are quite similar Granted, if an object is a Trojan, then it has to have an orbit with certain properties. But even when I took that into account, the similarity was still there. So the only way to have this kind of orbits bunching up together, if these asteroids are somehow related to each other. One way to make such a group of asteroids is if you have a larger asteroid at the beginning and you hit it with another asteroid, so the fragments will fly off and create, if you like, a family of Trojans of Mars. Ah, so it's like a debris stream. It's like a meteor stream where you've got lots of debris from a comet 
that's forming a stream through the solar system. And Precise. you've got all this material in similar orbits. Precisely. It's almost exactly the same as a meteor stream, except that here the objects are not a few millimetres or centimetres across. They are from a few hundred metres up to a kilometre across. The solar system is an absolutely vast place, though. The distances between the planets is absolutely huge. Is it likely for two asteroids to bang into one another in this way and fragment? As you say, the solar system is a huge place, but on the other hand, there is a great many asteroids and fragments from other collisions that are flying out there, and given enough time, such a collision is in fact almost inevitable. In fact, when I did this work, I concluded that the collision could not have happened earlier than about 2 billion years ago, which is about half the age of the solar system. I guess it's a curiosity to understand where these Trojan asteroids following Mars have come from. Is there anything more that we can learn about asteroid populations from studying these objects? One thing that we can learn, I think, is simply put how asteroids break up. Asteroids are not confined to the main belt between Mars and Jupiter. They also come close to the Earth. And it is a foregone conclusion that one day we may be faced with the knowledge of an asteroid heading straight for us. So it would be nice to know what to do in order to deflect it away from its course without breaking it up in many smaller pieces. There's uh, this debate that people have about whether it's best to take a nuclear approach of just nuking the asteroid into smithereens or whether it would be better to take a softly, softly approach of nudging it off the path. So... By looking at how asteroids behave, you can work out which approach would be best. Yes, that's exactly correct. You would want to know if, say, detonating a nuclear weapon near the asteroid would have the desired effect of nudging it a little bit on the side or fragmenting it into tens or hundreds of pieces uh, 100 metres across, which will then turn it into a cosmic cluster bomb, if you like. You found this absolutely vast number of previously unknown Trojans just by looking at asteroid catalogues. Do you think there are a lot more objects out there just waiting to be found in data astronomers already have? Indeed, I believe there are objects that could well be Martian Trojans, for example, in data that is currently sitting in catalogues. The problem is that many of these objects do not have good enough orbits to let us test whether they are Martian Trojans or not. So following up these objects with new observations to establish whether they are Trojans or not will be absolutely essential. Apostolos Christou from the Armar Observatory. The Sun is, of course, only one of around 100 billion stars in the Milky Way, a network of stars which has at its centre a black hole which has around 4 million times the mass of our own Sun. Cosmologists think that most large galaxies have supermassive black holes like this at their centres, but they don't understand how they form. A team of Australian radio astronomers believe they may have uncovered some new clues, however, as Kirsten Goschalk from the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research in Perth, Western Australia, explained to me. Well, actually, a paper just came out last week from my colleagues at CSIRO and also the University of Melbourne. And in fact, one of my colleagues at ICRA is involved in this as well. And they've published in Science a paper where they've used 
this timing array called the Parkes Pulsar Timing Array that's using the CSIRO Parkes radio telescopes in eastern Australia to look at pulsars and trying to detect gravitational waves. And they haven't yet detected gravitational waves, but using the information they have gathered through that survey, they've actually managed to learn something about supermassive black holes. Because as supermassive black holes in the centre of galaxies get closer and closer once galaxies have merged, they actually will start emitting gravitational waves. And so there will be kind of this background of gravitational waves in the universe caused by these merging black holes. And the fact that we haven't yet detected gravitational waves means that we can learn a little bit about how supermassive black holes are actually growing. So what exactly are these gravitational waves? You have gravity. And it obviously pulls things towards it. But Einstein, in his theories of space and time and relativity, predicted these things called gravitational waves, which are basically ripples in space-time that will actually expand or contract space itself. We haven't been able to detect them directly yet, but they're kind of like the last thing we need to put the final nail in Einstein's theories of gravity was be able to observe every other thing that he predicted except for these gravitational waves. And so they can be generated by massive bodies changing speed or direction. And one of those bodies in particular is a pair of black holes that are orbiting each other and getting closer and closer and spiralling together. But we haven't detected these gravitational waves. What have your colleagues in Australia found? So they've found that because we haven't yet detected these gravitational waves directly, that the merging black holes out there, the supermassive black holes, we can learn something about how they are actually growing. So there's a few different theories at the moment, actually four, of how supermassive black holes get bigger. And by not being able to yet see gravitational waves directly, we know that there's kind of a limit on how strong the gravitational waves must be because we haven't detected them yet. They must be weaker than that, which means that one of the theories for how black holes grow has been discounted. And in terms of our wider theories of how galaxies evolve and form, what can we learn from understanding these supermassive black holes? So at the centre of almost every galaxy out there is a supermassive black hole, but we don't really know how they got really big. We know that there's all of these stellar mass black holes out there that are, you know, size of our sun up to, you know, a few tens of times of the weight of our sun. But there's no real middle-sized black holes yet. In fact, well, we haven't found these intermediate mass black holes yet. So we don't really know how the supermassive black hole got to be supermassive. So there's four main theories. And by understanding that we've got these supermassive black holes out there that are orbiting around each other after a galaxy merger and they will be emitting gravity waves and the strength of those gravity waves can help us understand how the black holes are growing and kind of what's going on in that situation and the fact that the gravitational waves aren't strong enough to be detected yet means that we've learnt something about what's going on with those two big black holes that are in the centre of those merged galaxies. I remember about 10 years ago hearing talks saying that we were quite close to making our first detections of gravitational waves and it still seems to be the case that lots of people are saying it's just around the corner. Do you think we will actually make positive detections in the near future? I think we will. I think that we've got some amazing telescopes coming online at the moment that are going to be able to detect even more and more pulsars and keep really good records of them. 
telescopes like the Murchison Widefield Array, which is already operating in the Murchison in Western Australia, and then, of course, the Square Kilometre Array at the end of this decade and into the next decade. And one of their amazing attributes is their really large view of the sky. So they can get more and more information to add to these surveys, like the Parkes Pulsar Timing Array and the even earlier collaboration that have had like almost 20 years' worth of data, which is going to keep being able to time these pulses from pulsars down to really small accuracies, and then eventually we're just going to get to the point where we've got enough data and they'll just appear. We'll see gravitational waves. Thanks, Kirsten. That was Kirsten Goschalk, who's based at the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research in Perth, Western Australia. That's all for this month's Naked Astronomy, but as always, you can find out more on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash astronomy. If you've got any astronomy questions you'd like us to tackle next month, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or email astronomy at thenakedscientist.com. Naked Astronomy was produced this month by me, Dominic Ford, and by Kate Lamble. It comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council.